You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Well, friends, we are going to jump into the book of Ephesians today. If I haven't met you before, I've introduced myself. My name is Jimmy, and it's, uh, as always, my great pleasure and privilege to preach God's Word for you. Are you excited to get into this book? Yeah, it's good to hear. Well, before we uh, jump in, I'm going to pray for us, because I believe that God has a big message for us to hear and understand from the book of Ephesians. So why don't we pray and uh, ask God to bless us in this way. God, I just pray that you open our ears and our eyes and our hearts towards you this morning, that as we open up this book, that we would respond in worship, that we would go, wow, how great is our God. God, I pray that we see you in all of this, that although it can be tricky and difficult to understand and unpack, that we would see you as in this, saving us, restoring us, redeeming us. God, I pray that you would uh, aid our minds, that you would give us wisdom to both how to uh, preach, but also how to receive. And God, most of all, I pray that you bring people to life, that you restore hearts that have grown cold. God, we, we need you, we love you, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, uh, I am very excited to preach from Ephesians 1 because this is a heavyweight book of the Bible. It is a contender to the throne of the greatest chapter in the Bible. Okay? It is a gospel beast. These are some words that people have used to describe it. One theologian described it as a golden chain of excellence, a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights. Another described it as a snowball gathering pace as it rolls downhill. Another described it as lyrical theology, theology set to music. And another described it as the greatest description, the most majestic description of the gospel. So we know that when we open up this book, it's going to be good for us. It's going to be good for us. It has been, for me personally, an antidote when I felt discouraged, when I felt weak, and when I felt a profound lack of thanksgiving in my life, for me to dwell upon, meditate upon, and see what God is doing. And the thing that I love about it is that it is one complete sentence. So when Paul was writing it, there's no commas, no full stops. It's just like he started writing and got out of control. He's like, and this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. Because he's just so excited to share what's going on in Ephesians. But let me have a, a word of warning to us. It is complex. There's a lot going on. There's a lot for us to understand. But if it's any encouragement for you at all, on Tuesday night, we saw 30 teenagers from the ages of grade 6 to year 12 wrestle with it. And so it's really up to you whether you can pay more attention than grade 6s. We'll see. We'll see. We'll, I'll be able to tell you by the end. But uh, I want to I jump into this for two reasons. One is that I think Chapters like this drive us to worship God. There is a pervasive thought in uh, modern Christianity that sometimes doing too much deep work in theology can dampen your love for God. And we want to say, no, that's not what happens. Doing the deep work of theology, jumping into the deep and difficult things drives us towards God. Theology is just the study of God. The more that we study God, the more that we see the worth of God and the more that we worship God. And this, this moves into every area of our life. I know that uh, growing up, I had a very narrow view of what worship was. 
So I went to my local Christian bookstore, Greensboro Christian Bookstore, right? And uh, you go there and they have a praise and a worship section because praise is fast songs and worship is slow songs, right? It's so, uh, I don't know, just divorced from each other. But actually worship is everything that we do that reveals how great God is from the way that we talk to the way that we work to the way that we communicate with each other to the way that we, we orientate our lives. And so This book drives us to worship. And the reality is, is that all theology does that. And if it doesn't, we don't actually believe it. If what we read in the Bible doesn't cause you to go, wow, then you don't believe it or you don't understand it. Because everything written in this book, from every syllable to every word and every sentence, was written for you to consider how great God is and how incredible God is. And so if your response to reading something like Ephesians 1 is like, eh, you, you just don't, you don't get it. You've missed the point. The whole point is for us to go, Wow. Second reason I want to jump in is because I think it confronts the lack of identity and purpose that often pervades churches like ours. Mark Young, in a book on mission in the church, said that the greatest challenge facing the modern church is that we don't know who we are and we don't know what we're called to do. And because of that, it leads to a profound lack of thanksgiving in our lives. It erodes thanksgiving because we're so consumed by trying to discover who we are and what we're called to do that we forget who's guiding all of those things. And for most of us, the answer to our lack of identity and our lack of purpose is either two things. One, it's um, we ignore it or we move into introspection. We either ramp up the speed in our lives to go so fast that we just get to ignore all the little blinkers that are going off in our cars saying, hey, you should probably check out this problem, or we move into introspection, we move into isolation. We get our journals out, we freehand, we self-reflect, and that's all great and fine, but what Ephesians points us towards is that the answer isn't isolation, it's not introspection, it's not ignorance, it's adoration. It's when we consider who God is and what he's called us to that we actually gain our identity and gain our purpose. So what Paul is driving us towards this morning is not to look within ourselves, but to look up to the heavens. It's not to look towards quick fixes, uh, like this, this outside external changes, but inner transformation. He's saying that's what's needed. I love looking uh, at the persecuted church. I love hearing stories from the persecuted church because they really put us to shame a lot. I've been reading this story from the book The Insanity of God, which is a great story by Nick Ripken, who's been a missionary all over the world um, and in some crazy places. But he told this story from a church in China. And um, the church in China has, has been very persecuted over the last couple of years. And um, there was a person who owned a house that the Chinese house church met in. And so the authorities went to this person and said, well, um, we're going to take your house um, if you don't stop meeting there. And he said, well, that's going to be a problem for you because I've actually given my house to Jesus. You're going to need to take it from him. And the authorities didn't really know what to do to that. So they said, well, we, we don't know, we're not going to speak to Jesus. We're just going to take your house and... Um, well, your family's going to be out in the streets. He said, well, that'll be a great opportunity to show that God provides. And then the authorities don't really know what to do with that. They say, well, we're going to beat you. Well, that'll be a great opportunity to show that God heals. Well, we're going to throw you in prison. Well, that'll be a great opportunity to start a house church, to set the captives free, to set the prisoners free. 
He said, well, we're going to kill you. Well, that'll be fine by me because I'll meet face to face with my Lord Jesus. Well, what, what, what drives the church to be able to say these things is because they know exactly who they are. They know exactly what they're called to. It is an identity and purpose that cannot be ripped from them by persecution or disaster. That's what we want. And so, friends, I pray that as we jump into this text, God illuminates who we are and what we're called to. So let's open up the book and jump in. I encourage you to follow along. Um, There are a couple of translations if you're following along. Uh, Harriet read from the ESV. On the screen should be the um, Christian Standard Bible, but the ones out should be the CSB. But if you don't own a Bible, please take that one. Let's read from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Okay, so Paul is the person who's writing this. He's writing it to a church in Ephesus. And um, if you haven't heard about Ephesus before, it is the epicenter for the greatest Christian evangelism movement that history has ever seen. Um, there, uh, I read it in, I think, Acts 18 or 19, and we see this mass-wide city conversion where people who are engaged in evil uh, come and just convert en masse. They throw into a big bonfire their books of spells and witchcraft. It is incredible. And so Paul is writing to them. So what is he saying? Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Paul is writing specifically to Christians to remind them of the incredible blessings that God has given them. And it's interesting that the word he uses is in Christ. This is a, a phrase that is unique to Paul. It, happened, it basically occurs nowhere else in the Bible. It occurs 30 times in Ephesians and nine times in these 14 verses, Paul is trying to make a point that the blessings that he's about to detail, the blessings he's about to roll out for us are only available to those who are in Christ. There are blessings that God gives the entire world. These are not them. These are blessings that are only available to those who believe in, trust in, cherish Jesus. And so if you're, you're here this morning and that's not you, that's okay. We'd love you to read these and want these, but know that they're only available to you in Jesus. And the great thing is that the moment you trust in Jesus, these are all yours. There is no procedure that needs to happen. There is no four-step program that needs to happen. I trust Jesus and these are all mine. I think it's interesting as well that he says, every spiritual blessing God has blessed us with. In the Old Testament, blessings are primarily material. You could tell who was blessed by God, favored by God, by the amount of cows they had, or the amount of sheep they had, or the goats they had, or the land that they possessed. But in the New Testament, that's just not the case anymore. The blessings that God gives us in the New Testament aren't material primarily, but spiritual. They're things that are happening in a different realm. God is more concerned about the heart than what we possess. And it's really interesting because if you think about the way we talk about blessings in the church and in the wider community, it's still probably material. If you type into Instagram, hashtag blessed, you're not going to hear much talk about sanctification. 
You're not going to hear much talk about growing in Christ-likeness. You're going to hear, I got a house, hashtag blessed. I went to the gym, hashtag blessed. I got a chocolate ice cream, hashtag blessed. Right? That's the things we think about. But God is saying, no, 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 no. Material blessings fade. These spiritual blessings last forever. They have so much more worth. And so I'm going to separate these blessings into past blessings, present blessings, and future blessings that God has given us. So let's look at the past, verses 3 to 5. Again, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in him. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Okay. Okay. So for some of us, we're already already frothing at the mouth. Some of us are confused. That's okay. There is a massive controversy or discussion in Christian uh, theology and thought around these kind of issues about how God saves, how God chooses, how God predestines, to the point that I was talking with a friend uh, earlier this week about what I was going to speak about and said, hmm, predestination, isn't that like a Calvinism thing? Right? Some of you have no idea what that means. God bless you. I love you. Right? That's fine. Some of you are wondering whether I'm preaching from the JCV, the John Calvin Bible. And here's the thing. I want to make this very clear. We don't believe something at this church because John Calvin wrote it or because Jacob Arminius wrote it or because John Wesley wrote it or because Charles Spurgeon wrote it or because C.S. Lewis wrote it. Right? We don't believe those, those guys. They're helpful guides. That's all they are. What we want to do is read the Bible and believe what the Bible has for us in all of its fullness, wherever that leads us. And so what it seems to be saying in Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 5, is that God chooses us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, and God predestines us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. That's what it seems to be saying. And what happens for most of us is that as immediately as we read these passages, we have lots and lots of questions. Well, how does God choose us? What happens to my friends who haven't believed yet? Is that because they're not chosen? What happens to my, my free will? What happens, what, what, what's going on with evil? The reality is that the text doesn't want to answer those questions. It just doesn't. And sometimes we can get so bogged down in the questions that we actually forget to marvel at the wonder of what's going on here. And so uh, if you have questions, that's wonderful. There's a number there. Text that number. That's mine. I will personally respond to you with what I think is the, a helpful answer, but we're just not going to get into it this morning because it's not what the text is pointing at. What it's pointing at is the marvel that God chose us to be holy and blameless and the wonder that God predestined us for adoption. That's the point. Before anything happened in the entire universe, in the mind of God, he had you on his mind to pick out and to be his people. In the same way that God plucked out Abraham to be his chosen person, in the same way that God plucked out Israel to be his chosen nation amongst the Amalekites and the Moabites and the Babylonians and the Assyrians, right? there's all these other nations who are great and wonderful and majestic, 
God chose them. In the same way, God is saying he chose you. If you are a Christian, it is because God, before the foundation of the world, before you could do anything lovely or wonderful or kind or nice at all, chose you to be a part of his people. So let me tease this out a little bit because I think sometimes this is, this is a really murky bit of theology and we want to we we make sure we see it for all it's worth. Three things I think we need to know. That everything God did in his choosing and predestining was in love. He chose us in him to be holy and blameless in love before him. Sometimes we miss this. Everything God does in this chapter, in these verses, is done in love. And it's not a small kind of love. It is a lavish kind of love. Sometimes we think that God sort of loves us with a Vegemite kind of love. Right? Vegemite is the kind of thing that you only put a little bit of scrape on. Right? If you put too much in, you've got to throw the whole thing out. God loves us with a Nutella kind of love. Right? You want to get the whole spoon in and you want to just rub it around and you, if it falls off, doesn't matter, you lead it off the floor. doesn't matter, right? That's the kind of love that God loves us. It's a Nutella kind of love. Right? In verse 6 he says that he lavishes his love on us. Everything that God does is in love. So if God chooses us, it's in love. If God predestines us, it's in love. It's not cold, it's not callous, it's warm and it's smiley. Second thing that is incredibly important for us to know is that it has nothing to do with us. God predestined us or God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is incredibly important because it means that you had nothing to do with it. It means that it was not because of your kindness. It was not because of your goodness. It was not because of your holiness. It was not because of your righteousness. It was not because of anything within you. It was because of God's good pleasure. That is helpful for us. Something that I've been um, just blown away by is um, when you consider what God's chosen actually meant. So in the second verse of Ephesians, uh, second chapter of Ephesians, we're not going to get to it next week, unfortunately, but um, it's just, just, I'd encourage you to read it anyway. Ephesians 2 is beautiful. These are the first two verses in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercised authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Do you know who that is? That's Satan. What Ephesians 2 is saying is that every single person who has ever lived has either followed Jesus or Satan. And what Ephesians 1 is saying, that even though God knew that you were going to rebel against him, you were going to be part of a rebel army working against God, working for Satan, God has plucked you out of that and brought you into his family. It's not because of your goodness or your kindness or your niceness or your holiness. It says something about God. Jeremy, do we have the, uh, the Spurgeon quote there? I wasn't sure whether it loaded up. We do. Charles Spurgeon said this, which I think is incredibly helpful. I believe the doctrine of election or God's choosing or predestination because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I could never find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. The third reason why this is helpful for us is it's a sweet comfort. 
Many of us, when we think about election or predestination, don't view it as a sweet comfort. This is what the 39 articles, the um, guiding articles or doctrines of the Anglican Church says. The reverent consideration of this subject of predestination and of our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and inexpressible comfort to the godly and to those who feel within themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ. Well, you might be sitting here this morning and go, well, how can that be? How can it be that God choosing, God predestining, God electing these big words can be a sweet comfort for me? Well, it's very simple. In a world where we are tossed to and fro by the waves of discouragement, in a world in which we often feel distant from Jesus, for in a world where we often feel like failures, predestination is a lighthouse that declares your salvation does not depend on you. You are secure in me. It is a lighthouse that we can look to in the darkest nights that says, I am not going to abandon you. If I chose you before the foundation of the world, before you did anything at all, your distance from me is not going to destroy this relationship. Your failures are not going to destroy this relationship. Nothing is going to destroy this relationship. I love you and you are secure in my hands. It's why Brian Chappell wrote this. Predestination is for those who already love Jesus to assure them that their failures do not destroy his love for them. And so, friends, I understand if you struggle with this. I do. But see it for all it's worth. Your failures do not destroy God's love for you. The distance that you might feel between you and God, it does not destroy his love for you. Nothing can destroy his love for you because it's not based on what you do, it's based on what he has done. Let's move on to present blessings. Let's read verse uh, 5 again. Uh, Not 5, yes. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished upon us in the Beloved One. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Now language matters here very, very much. So in many of the modern translations, what it will say is that he predestined us to be adopted as children. It's not children, it is sons. It's very important that we say it's sons. And you, you might be like, well, why is that, that going on? Well, for a very reason. In the ancient Greco-Roman culture, like, to be a son was to have a privileged position in the family. We have a very different culture where it doesn't matter what sexuality you are or gender you are. You are welcome in the family. You have an equal place, but that's just not how it went back then. And so what Paul is trying to point us towards is that we have been adopted into God's family and it's not an inferior position that we hold in the family. It's not a lowly position. We have been adopted into God's family and been given a privileged position. If you are a Christian... You do not hold an inferior place in God's family. You have full privilege, full access in the family of God. There is no barrier. You are not a slave. You are not a servant. You are not the lowest. You have been made high. Paul is trying to make a point here. 
And I wonder sometimes whether we actually do understand this. Because for most of us, we'd rather say, yes, I am a child of God. Yes, I am a son of God. Yes, I am a daughter of God. But for most of us, we spend many minutes, much days of our lives, living as spiritual orphans, trying to earn the love of God again and again and again. If I just try harder and harder, then maybe God will love me. If I just do more, then maybe God will love me. Sarah and I... um, share something in common. We both play guitar. But you don't see me playing uh, in front of church very much, and that's okay. Um, That's honestly because I'm quite ashamed of my guitar playing. Because uh, when I play at home, um, I actually can't play around Sarah because in my mind, I know that she is so much better than I am at it that I just constantly feel inferior. So if I ever play guitar, what I do is I move into one of our rooms and then I lock the door. And then if we had soundproofing equipment, I'd probably soundproof the door because it doesn't matter what encouragement she gives me. It just feels like shame and condemnation. And I wonder if that's exactly how we feel with God that God is so much higher than us, so much greater than us, that despite the constant reminders of who we are in Him, despite the constant encouragement in Christ, despite the great theology that reveals that God is actually in us, is pleased with us, loves us, that we constantly feel we don't don't measure up, we constantly feel like failures. Do you know what the most tiring thing in the world is? It's trying to earn the love of a God who has completely already accepted you. Because you can't do it. You just can't earn it. He's already fully accepted you in the messiness of your everyday life. There is nothing left for you to do. You are completely, fully, wonderfully accepted in all of your pain, in all of your sin. Right? Stop trying to earn the love of God. That should be one of the great like New Year's resolutions every single year for all of us is to stop earning. We can't earn the love of God. It's already been given to us. It's not earned by us. It's received by us. It's not achieved by us. It's received. You cannot achieve the love of God. It's received from Him. It's a gift to you. That's why J.I. Packer had this to say about the doctrine of adoption. You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means they do not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is a Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Friend, there is nothing you could do to make God love you any more. There is nothing that you could do to make God love you any less. If you're in Christ, you are fully accepted for eternity. And you might be wondering, well, how can that be? You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know my experience. You don't know what's happened to me. You don't know the things that I've engaged in. Well, it's because verse 7 is true. So let's read verse 7. 
In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God has ransomed you. This is what we celebrate at Easter. Redeemed, ransomed is the same kind of word. It's the purchase of someone. In the ancient Greco-Roman culture, people would be purchased on their way to the mines or on the way to the gladiator arenas where they're going to die and they'd be brought into the family. Now that purchase would be with money. But Jesus has purchased you with blood. When he died on the cross, it was for you so that you might never have to feel shame again. Romans 8.1, what a beautiful promise. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Why? Because Jesus has ransomed you. Jesus has forgiven you. If you are in Jesus, you are fully accepted forever. One of the things that's been blowing my mind lately, I never realized it is that in heaven, when we receive our resurrection bodies, that is, bodily, bodies that are f- that completely devoid of illness, completely devoid of the marks of death, completely devoid of any marks of pain or childbirth or anything, there is only going to be one person who still bears the marks of suffering, and his name is Jesus. In heaven, Jesus will still bear the marks of the cross. And for eternity, when we view him, will be reminded of what it costs to bring us into God's family because that is his glory. Jesus rose from the dead. That is his resurrection body. He's alive with the same body that Thomas put his fingers in as a constant reminder that we have been ransomed, as a constant reminder that we have been forgiven. What a beautiful promise. Let us move to the future. Verses 8 to 14. He richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. For in him we have received an inheritance because we are predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. For in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So what's going on here? God has given us an inheritance. What kind of inheritance is that? That's a great question. I think 1 Peter answers that question for us. So look to the screen. This is what 1 Peter says. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for according to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and in to an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The inheritance that is every Christian's is an eternal relationship with the living God. A relationship with Him that will be imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading. It is a relationship that will go forever. That is the inheritance of every single Christian. We get to be with God forever. imperishing, unfading, indestructible. And you might ask the question, well, how can that be? How can it be that I get to spend eternity with God? It's because you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14. 
In him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. What Paul is trying to bring to mind here is a wax seal. In the ancient times, someone of importance would put a wax seal on a letter that promised the fulfillment of whatever was promised within. Whatever was promised in this letter would be fulfilled. And this is my seal, this is my mark that is going to happen. And Jesus, well, God, well Paul says, the same thing is true about us. We have the promised Holy Spirit as the first down payment of everything within. It is the fulfillment of all that is here. How do we know that we are chosen? We have the Holy Spirit. How do we know that we are predestined? We have the Holy Spirit. How do we know that we're adopted? We have the Holy Spirit. How do we know that we're ransomed? We have the Spirit. How do we know that we're forgiven? We have the Spirit. How do we know we have an inheritance? We have the Spirit. And how do I know that we have, I have the Spirit? Well, do you want those things? Because if you don't want them, you don't have the Spirit. They are gifts given to us from the Spirit. So if you want adoption by the King of Heaven, if you want to be chosen by God, if you want to be ransomed by Jesus, if you want to be forgiven by Jesus, if you want an inheritance that lasts forever, an eternal relation with God, that is a great sign that you have the Holy Spirit. This is not a small thing. Just look at the way that the prophets in the Old Testament, people who longed for, lusted after the Holy Spirit, talked about it. This is in Joel. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. And then in Ezekiel 36, it says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. What it's saying is that for those who have the spirit, we can finally walk in step with God. If you ever read the Old Testament, you're like, how come these guys mess it up all the time? It's because they don't have the Spirit. They're waiting for the time when the Spirit of God lives within them, enabling them to live and walk in step with God. And God is saying, you have the Spirit. God himself lives within you. That's why I love this chapter. Because Ephesians 1 declares the gospel. It declares that if you are in Christ, you have been chosen by him, adopted by him, ransomed by him, forgiven by him, given inheritance by him, and sealed by him to spend eternity with him. That's the gospel. That's what we celebrate every single week. And so as to the questions of what is my identity, what is my purpose, well, it's actually quite easy. My identity is... I'm God's. I belong to him. I'm with that guy. My purpose is whatever he wants. I don't have to work it out myself. I don't have to come up with a new identity. It really doesn't matter how skilled I am. Doesn't, my identity isn't my job. My identity isn't my marriage. My identity isn't my singleness. My identity isn't my intellect. My, my identity isn't my education. My identity is... I am chosen, adopted, ransomed, forgiven, sealed with the Spirit. That's who I am. I wonder sometimes if we believe this. I wonder sometimes if we do or whether we want to. Because I look at the world outside of us and they are crying out for Christians who live like this. 
They are crying out for Christians who are knocked, not knocked over by criticism, not uprooted by disaster, not knocked off balance by suffering, not knocked off balance by pain, not knocked off balance by all these things that occur to us. And the answer is for all of them, I know who I am in Jesus. As we consider what the persecuted church does, right? how, how can they have such confidence? They know who they are. They know what they're called to do. Friends, I pray desperately and deeply that we would have the same. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this word from Ephesians. I thank you that is a blessing. That the King of heaven before foundation of the world chose us to be holy and blameless. That God the Father predestined us to be his sons and his daughters. That Jesus has ransomed us on the cross. That Jesus has forgiven us in the ways that we walk out of step with him. And that the Spirit applies the inheritance that we all will experience, eternity with you. God, I pray that we revel in this, that we marvel at this, that in wonder and awe we consider all that you are. God, I pray in line with Paul. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of them. I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we may know what is the hope of our calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. And friends, we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen.